Like a child on Christmas morning, I massacred the envelope in my eagerness to get to its contents. It bore a UK stamp, a dead giveaway as to the identity of the sender, and its shape and size confirmed that this is what I'd been waiting for. I clutched it lovingly, relishing the artwork on the front, the names on the back, and the cool smoothness of the plastic container. Here it is. A DVD, a low-budget British movie, The Foley Artist, it's called. I'd never heard of it, and I suspect neither have you, but somewhere deep down where logic and reason don't shine their dismal light, I knew it would become my favourite movie. Yet there were Oscar-sized reasons why I should shun this film. On the back, it has one of those snippets of reviews that you get in movie promotions. It had apparently received two thumbs from a critic at something called the Mayhem Horror Film Festival. (laughs) That disturbed me. Because, you see, when it comes to horror movies, I'm chicken little. No, the sky isn't really falling. It's being chopped into tiny pieces by a psychopath dressed like a clown. I've always been this way. Uh, When I was a kid, I used to hide behind the sofa in Doctor Who. To me, fear is, well, fearful and not entertaining. And neither do I do all the blood and gore in slasher flicks. I have to look away. Actually, I don't need to look away because I've never even begun to look in the first place. There's a reason why I'm a parish priest and not a hospital chaplain. So if you are ever in hospital, I will visit you, but please do not show me the wound from your surgery. Now, there were other signs on the DVD box that this film might not be my cup of tea. There's the little red circle with the number 18 in it. That's the highest censorship rating in the UK. And then there's this warning on the back. May contain graphic scenes of torture and violence. May contain... What's with that? Is this like those warnings on packets of nuts that say may contain traces of nuts? (laughs) But all that did not matter. My compulsion to rip open the box and stuff the disc in my computer was uncontrollable because hidden below all the promotional flair was a small credit. The identity of the filmmaker. Rob Johnston, my son, who at the time was in his final year of his bachelor's degree in filmmaking at the University of Nottingham Trent. Where did I go wrong? What happened to my baby? One minute they're playing in the sandbox, the next they're getting two thumbs up from the Mayhem Horror Festival. But it doesn't matter how gross it is, and as it turns out, it isn't too gross, because it's a spoof of the horror genre. My lad did this, and it doesn't matter what he does in life, I'll be proud of him. Of course, I could have got all religious about it. 
I could have thrown Rob's film in the garbage and written him a stern letter rebuking him for his twisted imagination and the profligate waste of his talents. I could have told him that God was dishonoured by this kind of entertainment and called him to make Christian films instead. I could have, but I don't actually believe that. And even if I did, I'd still be proud of him. I'd still want him to have a wonderful and fulfilling career in his chosen field. And if that happens to be in Hollywood, where he can earn millions of dollars and buy Galind and me a retirement mansion in Mul- Mulholland Drive, then that is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> I could have gone all exorcist. I could have gone Ghostbusters. I could have done a Jonah. He was one of those self-righteous, judgmental God-followers that we're sadly too familiar with who give our faith a bad name. No question, Jonah was a true believer. He loved God. He really did. He was nothing less than a prophet. But this morning, his story reminds us that even devout Christians can sometimes get things disastrously wrong. Even the greatest of saints can have reels of sinful attitudes in their heads and misguided intentions in their hearts. You know the Jonah movie. It's a gripping story in a world where God's love is supreme. It's a boy meets God, God sends boy, boy runs away, boy meets fish, boy ends up doing what God asked him to do in the first place kind of story. God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. But Jonah didn't like Ninevites. They were sinners, good-for-nothings, immoral. And actually they really were. The script God gives to Jonah to recite is a love story, one that features repentance. But Jonah dislikes the Ninevites so much that he is nauseated by the idea of even going to their city, let alone wasting the word of God on them. So he boards a ship going in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Then the ship meets a storm, and fearing a titanic disaster, the crew throw Jonah overboard. And fast forward to the beach scene, and a pile of fish vomit, with a prophet sitting in the middle of it. Which just goes to show that if you run away from doing what God calls you to do, you may end up having to do it anyway. Don't become fish vomit. And so Jonah showered and preached one of those turn-or-burn sermons, full of blood-curdling promises of God's judgment unless they stopped doing evil and turned to the Lord. And having discharged his duty, he bought his popcorn and found a good seat from where he could watch the entertaining spectacle of God pouring down fire and brimstone upon these moral delinquents. But... Spoiler alert, that is not the ending God had planned. Those villainous Ninevites, they only went and repented. And God, he only went and forgave them. So Jonah is not happy. 
and like a spoiled child he pouts and he complains to God. I knew this would happen. I knew you would be all gracious to them, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Why couldn't you wipe them out anyway? It's not fair. Here was a man filled with hate, preaching God's love. A man preaching God's mercy, but seeking his judgment. And his temper tantrum continues. If he can't have it his way, he's going to take his ball and go home and sulk. And he does that awfully manipulative thing with God. He says, God, kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. Oh, the drama. And God says, Jonah, why are you angry? But Jonah uh, can't be consoled and he storms out of the city and sits down under the blazing sun and hopes to die. But God, the ever-merciful, doesn't leave Jonah to sit there getting sunstroke. He makes a bush shoot up and cover him so that he can get some shade. And Jonah begins to feel better. But then God strikes the bush with an infestation and it withers as quickly as it had shot up. And this sets Jonah off again on another Oscar-winning display of self-pity. Oh God, he says again, it's better for me to die than to live. And God whispers, is it right for you to be so angry about the death of a shrub? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. And God says, you have been concerned about this bush, even though you did not plant it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And amazingly, the book of Jonah finishes right there. The only book of the Bible to finish with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah resents the love of God. Now in his favour, he does have a strong sense of right and wrong. He knows his Bible. He genuinely hears from God. He faithfully preaches the message God gives him, eventually, and he understands God's justice. He is Nineveh, this sin city, and it needs God's correction. But he is totally unbalanced. He has no grasp whatsoever of God's mercy. His cold, hard, legalistic heart has no room for God's compassion. God, for him, is a judge in a criminal court, or some cosmic policeman who watches and waits for people to do something wrong, and then he'll smite them. In Jonah's movie, the God who loves, who forgives, who weeps, who longs for his people and yearns for their love, who aches for their plight and mourns for their loss, who bleeds for their pain and dies for their hurt, that God, well, in Jonah's movie, that God lies on the cutting room floor. The heart of Jonah's problem is that he sees religious correctness as more important than people. 
He prefers shrubs to human beings. He gets angry when his plant dies, but is delighted at the prospect of God wiping a city off the face of the planet. And those Christians are still around. They are the pastors who relish telling us on TV or the internet that natural disasters are God punishing a city or a nation for its sins. Many Christians prefer liturgy to human beings, or sacred buildings, or church traditions, or economic theories and stuff. Sometimes I do an impression of that type of Christian And the likeness is so realistic, it's scary. I may not be a self-righteous bigot, but I can sure play one in the movies. I become the star of my own horror film. I remember times when I refused to listen to people because they challenged my immature faith and I wanted the security of my fortress. People I rejected because their very presence made me suspect that God was more generous and gracious than I could cope with. Six months ago, uh, in Pennsylvania, I took a wedding. And afterwards, as I was chatting politely with guests over a finger buffet, a man in his late 20s surged into my personal space and insisted that he talk with me. He almost physically grabbed me and dragged me away. He confessed to me that he was guilty. A decade earlier, as a high school athlete, he had been a bully. He told me about an occasion when he had teased and even physically abused a classmate because he was not athletic. And now, this object in the rearview mirror was closer than it appeared and he could not get his victim out of his head. He wanted to know if God could forgive him and set him free from his burden. Now it was clear that I did not need to tell him that he did indeed need forgiveness. That bullying can blight and even end the lives of children and young people. He didn't need to be told what he painfully knew. What he did need to hear was that God loved him. Like a proud parent. Even when this man caused a mayhem horror festival in other people's lives. I felt Jesus in that conversation. I felt his pride in his son who had been rebellious and spiteful and violent but who was now returning to his father contrite and ashamed. As his penance, his act that would show his sincerity, I told him he had to be a good role model to the boys and young men who are now in his life. And he went away pumped up jaw-jutted like the athlete he was, determined to become involved in the lives of lads and influence them for good. Because when God sends you to speak into the lives of his people, it is a tale of reconciliation, not destruction. A story of forgiveness, not punishment. A love story, not a horror movie. Amen.